Hello everyone, I'm Tom Smith from Secular Radio, the show without a prayer, and I never listen to I Doubt It with Dollamore. Are you kidding? Who would listen to something called Dollamore? Dollar less maybe, but a dollar more? I don't think so. These are tough times. We have to save a dime whenever we can. I don't know about you, but I have to stretch my podcast dollars. I have to make them last. I can't afford to listen to something called dollar more. I mean, what am I getting for my money? What exactly does Jesse give me for my dollar more? So, I don't listen to I Doubt It with Dollar More. I suggest you avoid it as well. If you want your dollar's worth, if you want to hear a real bargain, then listen to Secular Radio. Now, that show airs new episodes every Monday night at 7 p.m., 10 p.m. Eastern on WhidbeAir.org. Just visit WhidbeAir.org, that's W-H-I-D-B-E-Y, Air, and hit the listen button. Or go there to hear podcasts of Secular Radio anytime. I can't wait to hear what you think. But please, I doubt it with Dollamore. Who can afford that show? The following broadcast may contain free thinking and open-minded discussion, ideas, skepticism, and adult subject matter. Topics will be discussed using adult language, sometimes gratuitously. Get ready to move the conversation forward. This ain't your granddad's news and comment show. This is I Doubt It with Dollamore. We are ready, if you are. This is I Doubt It with Dollamore, episode 144. God damn, that number's getting up there. I am your host, as always, Jesse Dollamore, and sitting across from me, as lovely and ready to go as ever, my beautiful and intelligent co-host, Brittany Page. Here I am. Here you are. As always, healthy, consistently here. Wow. Is that a dig? Yes. That's a dig, right? Yes. On me. Mm-hmm. Your humble host. Correct, sir. All right. Well, before we get started, I just want to address the very uh, the promo that just dropped at the beginning of the show. Typically, our promos are 10 or 12 seconds or so, and <laughs> Tom Smith from Secular Radio was gracious enough to provide his very own promo in his very own style (laughs) and let me tell you from the length of it you would think i was giving him a dollar more per word yes (laughs) yes well the good news is that now we have less talking to do on the show because he did most of the work for us it cuts a a, an hour and 15 minute show to roughly 25 minutes yes Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, we appreciate it very much, Tom. All jokes aside, if you too would like to have your promo played at the onset of the program. Program. The program. Mm -hmm. You can do that too. Don't hesitate to call and leave a voicemail with it. 657-464-7609. All you have to do is say who you are, where you are from, and that you never listen to I Doubt It with Dollamore. So, back to the matter at hand, Brittany. Mm-hmm. How are you doing? You're, uh, you, 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 you came out unscathed from our, our very late breakfast slash lunch today when you were attacked <laughs> by a rogue bastard breakfast bird. Yeah, that was terrifying. It was very scary, and as we all know, I have some lingering anxiety over my raccoon attack. Well, it's not, listen, what, raccoon attack. 
Jesus. <laughs> the thing that the audience has probably figured out by this time is that you, you're not a big animal fan. You don't think, oh, cute, cuddly. You think, danger, I might have my face ripped off at any given moment by whatever species of animal. That's that's not entirely accurate, but I would say for the majority of animals, yes, that is the case. And, and we had a rogue pigeon. We did. Holy shit. Yeah, it was ballsy, this bird. Unbelievable. Like, we were eating breakfast. At a small circular table. Yes. Three of us. Yes. And it decided it wanted to be on the table with us. <laughs> yeah. So it... I think it just kind of flew over the table, but it was like very close to the table and it was flying at me. Yeah, it was under the radar, as it as it were, where very low to the ground, very low to the table. Almost dragging its vicious claws <laughs> on the table as it was flying its by. vicious claws. I think it was trying to scoop up some food well, as it was flying over the table. Like a ball, a majestic bald eagle dipping its <laughs> talons into the water and coming up with a salmon. Yes, <laughs> precisely. That is the perfect imagery. Except it was a dirty, filthy pigeon. Yeah, but they were aggressive. You, you at one point, Brittany's sitting there eating, and we're having a convert. We're in depth in conversation, so in depth she doesn't realize that this goddamn pigeon <laughs> is perched on the back of her chair. Ready for whatever might fall from her fork to, oh. to, to lunge and grab at, at some crumbs. I thought you were going to say ready to attack for the second time. Flying at my face wasn't enough. Now it wanted to come at me from behind. Yeah. Not good. Attack birds. And so I was, I was tense throughout the rest of the breakfast <laughs> because they were crawling all over the ground toward the table trying to find food, right? And... They, like you said, they were aggressive. You got up from the table at one point. Yeah, I went to go get, refill my drink. And the bird jumped up on the table and almost landed on your plate. And <laughs> I mean, I just, I don't understand what's wrong with them. Well, obviously there is a, there is a decent group of people who dine in the Newport Beach area because otherwise, I mean, if these birds were getting their heads smashed at every turn because they got too close they would stop coming close. It's because they're fed. It's because they're treated well that they are brazen little assholes. Okay, so stop feeding them well, it's either, from the table. It's, there's only two things to do here. It's either stop feeding these goddamn urchins or start smashing their heads. That's it. There's only two choices. Okay. <laughs> Something seems off about this it was, scenario. It's just bizarre. It's... It's like every year when we go to get your Sprinkles cupcake, there's those little <laughs> tiny like finches, those little little tiny birds uh -huh. that I will I feed from hand because they're so cool. You feed from hand? From my hand. I feed from hand. I, <laughs> I feed by hand. Uh -huh. And I, it's kind of, it's quaint. It's oh, a little birdie coming up and, you know, trust, <laughs> trusting you to eat out of your... Your giant man hand that could grab him and smash him into pulp. Okay, what is going on? I don't know. I'm aggressive You're toward very, the birds right yeah, now. It's very violent. Yeah, I don't know. So we should explain why I go to Sprinkles once a year because on your birthday, you get a free cupcake. So I do go to Sprinkles every year on my birthday for my free cupcake. One one free that's only time we ever go to Sprinkles too yeah. is for your free goddamn cupcake. Yeah, that's it. All right. They're not making any money off me. Sorry. They're losing money. They're not just not <laughs> making money. They, you are a, a net 
loss yeah. for the company. Sorry. Because I, of their generous cupcake giving program. Sorry. Program. Program. Brittany. All right. Let's move on to a little follow up. Get right into the show before we start getting any more distracted relative to birds, smashing of birds, the the good treatment of birds. You're, Let's move on. Yeah, enough with the demented talk it's about It's not the demented. Birds. I'm just I'm postulating mm-hmm. the possibilities of why these birds are so domesticated. Okay. Wow. <laughs> For our very first piece of follow-up, I want to talk about the matter of police officer, campus police officer, Ray Tensing. He is the, the cop who shot Samuel DuBose after a traffic stop recently. Why don't you remind us of exactly what went on? Ray Tensing, 25, a former University of Cincinnati police officer, was charged with murder in the shooting death of Samuel DeBose, 43, on July 19th. He was an unarmed black man, and he delayed producing his driver's license and attempted to drive away, and Ray Tensing shot him in the head. And Ray Tensing has been charged with murder, though, so that's good because he was wearing a body cam. It was immediately fired. Right, and his bond was set at one million, and he posted bond less than eight hours after he had the bond set. That's right. So he's out now, and awaiting awaiting the the judgment of the court. He's waiting the process while out on bail, which is a standard. That is why they set bail. It's he had to offer up to a bail bondsman ten percent of the total bail. One million. Yeah, so he had to offer up $100,000 from where he got that money. I don't know, but it's the way the system is set up. They set a very high bail just because now if he runs away, he's out a hundred grand or whoever put up the money is out a hundred thousand dollars and he's going to have the bail bondsman, that company, sending idiots like Dog the Bounty Hunter on his trail to get him back. I don't suspect that's going to happen. But anyway, so he's out on bail now. In the in the in recent days in, in in the in the wake of all this, I don't know if you'd be surprised by this. I was not surprised. Another video has surfaced of him acting well, like you would expect him to act during another traffic stop with a couple of young African American men. Well, here's something that's coming to light this morning. Video of another contentious traffic stop involving Officer Tensing. Uh, Last May, he pulled over two black men who felt that they weren't being treated fairly. Take a look here at the exchange that he had with passenger Demetrius Pace. I need your name, your date of birth. Demetrius. I need your date of birth. I'm not giving you that. Okay, if you refuse to identify yourself, we have a charge. What's the charge? What's the charge? What's your charge? What's your charge? I just told you my name. Why are you What's interrupting me? You asked me a question. What's the charge? Step out of the car. What's the charge? Step out of the car. For what? Step out of the car. What am I stepping out the car for? Because I asked you to. What am I stepping out for? Step out of the car. What am I stepping out for? Identify yourself. Step out of the car. I just told you who I was. We're asking for your supervisor. It doesn't matter. Just we're asking for your supervisor. No, we're asking. Are we free to go? Can you write the ticket so we can go? We're not free to get right now. Okay, you. What are we doing then? What are we doing? We're not doing detained right now. Okay, being detained for what? We're being detained for this? You guys wanted the supervisor? It don't matter. So there you have it. That is... There's a lot going on in that tape that I want to talk about. Um, 
first of all, I think it's very, very funny that the passenger, you can hear him snickering and giggling about what's transpiring. Mm -hmm. That this cop is just getting more and more frustrated because he's wrong. Right. And and he is bound by certain, uh, he, he is obligated to follow certain procedures, certain policies, and the law. And so he can't just yank them out of the car for no reason. Right. Hence, that's why he did not do that. The other thing is, and this is just a, you know speculative on my part, wondering, I wonder if this Demetrius Pace guy in, in recent days is counting his, his lucky stars that something didn't go crazy and, and end up being murdered by this cop. I mean, it very well could have gone sideways very easily right and he could be dead right now right that's why you know the the passenger laughing i mean it shows maybe like a different time i'm not sure if this was several years ago no last year okay because a contentious thing like this happening between a police officer today yeah not good well even in one year even in one year we've seen the climate and tension between Blacks and cops go just because of the media coverage of this. It's it's gone through the roof. Right. And in listening to that exchange, I mean, so there's always this discussion of, well, people should just listen to the police and follow directions. And, you know, he identified himself. That's what he has to do. Why is he asking him to get out of the car? Why is he continuing the situation when it, when pushed to a level of frustration, he finally says, well, then just get out. Now you got to get out. It's the same thing with the Encinia. He's getting frustrated. Sandra hey, Bland. Put your cigarette out, Mrs. Sandra, Miss Sandra Bland. No, I don't have to. I'm in my car. All right, well, now you have to get out. Now I'm going to fuck with you. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it is power run amok. It is, we're putting the power of life and death and arrest and the power to ruin someone's life ultimately or end it into the hands of these immature, insecure idiots. Well, well, look, I'm not. Uh, it is. Listen, it frustrates me that we have these. He's not a professional. He doesn't act in a professional manner. It's not a battle of egos. Right. And and I've seen a lot of people say, well, you know, you don't know what cops have to go through. They have a very difficult job. They have to deal with these hostile situations. Right. And yeah. you know that going into it. So here's the deal. If you are someone that has a, a certain personality and you're getting into this job and you can't handle that without being aggressive, without letting people get under your right. skin, without you know, killing people, then that's a problem. Well, it's like if a teacher, if an, a kindergarten or first grade teacher, you know, every every year or so, she grabs a kid and shakes him because she's frustrated. Mm-hmm. And then you say, well, you got to understand, kindergartners and first graders, they can be assholes. <laughs> yeah, we get that. But she's a teacher. She has to be able to perform her job even under those stressful conditions Without shaking a kid. Right. It's the same thing. It is. Theoretically. It is. For a cop. Yeah. You, you, you need to be a special kind of person to do that job. Just like any job. If you're a data, data entry person and you don't like sitting in front of a computer entering numbers, 
that's probably not the job for you. Yeah, if attention to detail isn't your strong suit, right. maybe that's not for yeah. you. I'm not cut out for data entry. Mm-hmm. I'm really not cut out. This is it for me. <laughs> Running my mouth is, is, is what, that's what the cards have set for me. We know. So, so the deal is, you, not everybody gets to be a cop because you want to be a cop. You have to have a special set of characteristics surrounding your personality. And if you don't have those certain set of characteristics, you don't get to be a cop because that is an important job in our society. Well, and this also brings up another important point, which is, so he has a history of these issues, right? Yeah. I'm sure this isn't the only one that... Right. It's maybe the only one on tape, but it's certainly not the only one. Right. So something needs to be done with that. When you are caught in an altercation and you're you're just being difficult, I mean, that should be investigated. Are you just having a bad day? Is this a pattern? What's going on here? And they should be giving support to police officers if that if he was just under stress that day or they need to investigate what's going on because then you have a situation a year later where they're shooting someone in the head. Right. His his frustration is building and building. He is to steal a phrase from cards. He's running in the red and then he just shoots a guy. They There should have been some kind of intervention psychologically through counseling or whatever to get him out of the red where he's, you know, running in the in the green. He's he's down here at a better level. He's not ready to explode mm-hmm. because what happened? An innocent man lost his life. Yes. So it's terrible. All right. For our next piece of follow up, I know we'd made jokes and I played clips of former subway spokesman Jared Fogle. You know, I travel almost 200 days a year as part of my job and as part of what I do with Subway. So I have to be obviously pretty careful, especially when you're on the road. Especially when you're on the road. Well, we we played those clips in jest and made some jokes after his partner or the president, his best friend and the president of his children's foundation was indicted on child pornography charges. And I don't mean just possession of child pornography charges. I mean the production of child pornography in his home. Well, Jared Fogle, as you well may remember, his home was raided and it wasn't looking good for Mr. Fogle. Mr. might be a little strong. Well, there has been a development and it's not looking good for the former fat guy. It's looking worse. Yeah, terrible. The FBI has subpoenaed an affidavit containing alleged texts between former Subway spokesman Jared Fogle and a former female Subway franchisee in which Fogle says he paid for sex with a 16-year-old girl. The former franchisee shared the texts and her concerns about Fogle with Subway management at the time, but Subway did nothing. Subway says it has no record of the woman's complaint. Mm-hmm, sure. The woman's lawyer who asked to remain anonymous said the FBI recently subpoenaed his law office for the text messages containing conversations. In the messages, Fogel repeatedly asks the woman to advertise herself on Craigslist for sex with other men. He asks if he can watch the sexual acts and tell her and tells her she can make about $500 per act. 
The messages in the affidavit, which the attorney says were recorded from the woman's phone by a court reporter in 2008 and witnessed and verified by a notary public official, span from January 2008 to June 2008. And it doesn't look good. From this article, it looks like she had a sexual relationship with Jared Vogel, and she became increasingly more creeped out by the fact that he wanted to have, you know, three ways or whatever other people have her have sexual encounters where he would be watching and, you know, be in the mix somehow. A former journalist separately came forward earlier this month claiming that Fogel made inappropriate remarks to her about middle school girls. According to the woman, Jared would often visit schools in Sarasota County and allegedly told her numerous times that, quote, middle school girls are hot. It's not looking good for this guy. Obviously, innocent until proven guilty. Um, but like I said last time, the FBI does not, they're not just monkeying around, hoping that, taking stabs in the dark, hoping that they get this one right. They've clearly got evidence enough to, to burn him. They're just going the extra mile, doing their due diligence, and getting the rest of the details that they need to put this guy away. And if convicted, he needs to never see the light of day again for these crimes. If he had sex with minors, if he's involved with the production of child pornography, that is victimizing the most innocent among us, and he needs to be put away forever. Well, and that's what's concerning because he runs this charitable group, the Jared Foundation, and its aim is to help children develop better eating and exercise habits. Right. So he has this foundation to help children. How convenient. Which very much reminds me of Jerry Sandusky. He did the exact same thing. The Penn State fiasco. Yeah, he had a foundation aimed at helping boys that come from difficult situations. Right. And then he used that foundation to take advantage of those kids. Right. It, it creates this this ready access stable of young victims on which you can pray. And he, you know, he will, he's another one who probably won't ever get out of jail. He'll die in jail. So I, if Jared Fogel, you know, I'm not witch hunting here, but if Jared Fogel is guilty of these crimes and is convicted of these crimes, I hope that he awaits the same fate dying in prison because it's terrible. He's ruining the lives of young girls um, without a thought for their health and their well-being. All right, moving on. Support for I Doubt It with Dolomore comes from generous, engaged, intelligent, and good-looking listeners like yourself by way of Patreon. You can contribute per episode as much or as little as you'd like. Comforted by the knowledge that you're within your budget and helping move the conversation forward one podcast at a time. If you too would like to become a supporter, please visit patreon.com slash I doubt it with Dolomore. So I just had a thought that <laughs> we all know that that's not me. I tried, but it, it didn't work out. Right, right. But I had the thought we should have had listener Kathy record that. Oh, yeah. Because her voice would seduce all of the listeners. She does have a sexy ass voice. Yes. Yeah. And it would have been perfect. Maybe I should e I have her email address. Uh, maybe I should 
because she submitted things for our Thanksgiving episode and yeah. she's been gracious enough to kind of support the show in that way. Yes. I think she's also a patron. Yes, she is. <laughs> so we're going to make her work. I'm going to email her the script, that very script, and we'll get her to read it. That would be awesome. Only if sometimes, she wants to. Sometimes, no, I like to exert a little pressure on the listening audience. Okay. Sometimes, Brittany Page, you come up with some good ideas. Very rarely. I, I gotta say, mm -hmm. it happens yeah. once in a while. Dollamocracy 2016. Facing down pessimistic politics with realistic optimism. So in the... The, the the manner that is that is seemingly what's taking place here with the presidential candidates with the Democrats, Joe Biden is what's the is it the hokey pokey? You, you got your one foot in, you got your one foot out. He's maybe he's gonna, maybe he's not. You got your hip bone in, you got your your hip bone out. Well, it looks like he might be exploring the race a little further, and he invoked the name as like a dying wish of his of his recently departed son. I don't know what's going on over there. Vice President Joe Biden's late son, Beau, told his father to run for president before he died, according to a report. New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd, in her weekend column entitled Joe Biden in 2016, What Would Beau Do?, describes in great detail a conversation that Beau had with his father before dying, urging his father to run for president rather than letting the office fall to former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. <laughs> Joseph Bo Biden III died of brain cancer at the end of May. Dowd's source for the anecdote is not clear from the column. Vice President Joe Biden has been holding meetings at his Washington home to discuss the possibility of a run. Hmm. And then there's this. Welcome back. So there's this new report out this morning that says that Joe Biden, the vice president, and his son Bo, in the months before Bo died of brain cancer, encouraged his father to run for president. Will that plea be enough to spur Biden to challenge Hillary Clinton? Let's get into it with Van Jones, CNN political commentator, Jennifer Jacobs of the Des Moines Register, Brianna Keeler, CNN senior political correspondent, and Haley Barber, former Mississippi governor. Thanks one and all for being here. So are you hearing anything in Iowa about people maybe wanting Biden to run or Biden reaching out to Iowans? Not so much a hunger, but there has been some reaching out. Uh, his inner circle has reached out to a limited number of friends of Biden in Iowa. They haven't really reached out to the extended Biden network in Iowa yet. And they're, they're not saying great, he has given a green light on, on running. He hasn't. But they're saying we would like to prepare just in case he does. So we're expecting an uptick of pro-Biden activity in the next few days. Is there a hunger for Biden? Look, I mean, I, I, no, uh, there's not. Uh, but listen, he is incredibly respected. He's a beloved figure in our party. But the reality is he's not so different from Hillary Clinton from the point of view of the rising energy in the party. The Clinton party was a very pro-incarceration party, anti-regulation for Wall Street, and big on triangulation. The new party, the Elizabeth Warren wing, Bernie Sanders, Black Lives Matter, less incarceration, more regulation, and they hate the triangulation. They want authenticity. So he checks the authenticity box, but no other box in our party. There's just no hunger. They love him. There's no hunger for him. Do you think that he could be a credible candidate if he got the nomination? Well, I think if Hillary Clinton doesn't win the nomination, he, she's going to lose it to somebody like Joe Biden or John Kerry. I don't think she's going to lose it to Bernie Sanders. Reminds me of 1968 when you had Senator McCarthy kick Johnson out 
but it was Hubert Humphrey that got the nomination, and it would have been t- uh, Robert Kennedy. It is, I think, too soon to say whether he is going to mount a run, and we understand that the decision will come sometime in early September. I think that's the new timeline, so that's been pushed. But I also think we know that he's having some conversations with those who are close to him, even if some of it is just listening to people who want him to run, and he's not ruling it out. So I think a few uh, months ago, in recent months, you might have said, you know, I really thought it was unlikely that he would mount a run, but he isn't ruling it out, and nor should he if he's looking at the polls. Hillary Clinton in the most recent Quinnipiac University poll, 57% of those surveyed say they don't trust her. 52% said they don't think that she cares about their problems. And you look at how Biden is registering and it's exactly the flip side. Nearly six in 10 Americans say they trust him and that they believe that he cares about their problems. Governor, as somebody who has thought about running for president in the past, is it too late for somebody like Joe Biden to get into the race? Not really. Uh, I don't think it's too late for him or for Kerry or for Elizabeth Warren, for that matter. Because you want them all. You want them all <laughs> well, no, but, but what is stimulating this to be thought about is, is what Brianna talked about, Mrs. Clinton's problems. Surprising weakness from, from Hillary Clinton on stuff that you really want her to be stronger on. Listen, he's a sitting vice president. If he, he can wait till December if he wants to. I think people have heard of him in Iowa. So I think he can wait if he wants to. But I, I, I think that this is more about the troubling signs from Hillary Clinton, possibly in October, imploding in front of a, a, a committee in Congress, much more than it is a passion for, for Biden. It's hard to get caucus goers to get out to that vote. You've got to really organize. And Hillary Clinton already has 60 staffers in Iowa alone. She has 11 offices. Bernie Sanders has matched her. He has 11 offices in Iowa as well. Fewer uh, uh, aides there. But they're really digging in and fighting hard and, you know, talking to all these people in every single county, it's hard to replicate that. It's anywhere else, you might be able to come in late, but Iowa, it's tricky. And there lies the difficulty for Joe Biden. The fact that he doesn't have the campaign, the national campaign infrastructure to rely upon to get the message out and to organize voters, which is very, very important, especially in a caucus state like Iowa. It's not your typical primary state where where he does have time on his side a little bit is the fact that Hillary Clinton, like we talked about last episode, is distrusted, largely distrusted in very important states, Iowa being one of them. So he could use that for his advantage, to his advantage, in, in the delay before he decides whether or not he's going to run. I don't think he's going to run, but what the hell do I know? I didn't think Trump would be doing what he's doing right now either. So, mm-hmm. so only time will tell, I guess, just uh, you know, a few more weeks, maybe, maybe three more weeks, and we may know whether current sitting Vice President Joe Biden, former senator from Delaware, whether he'll, he'll run for president, throw his hat in the ring. And Joe Biden really is one of the most likable politicians. He really is very likable, for sure. Yeah. Very nice guy. Very genuine guy. So, speaking of the aforementioned Donald Trump, things are not looking good for Trump relative to some of the the claims, the bold claims he's making about making America great and fighting for the American worker and calling... Uh, immigrants, rapists, and all the, the crazy hyperbolic things that he's been so become so known for. His empire over the course of the last several years has applied for over 1,100 foreign visas for workers 
within the Trump organization, within the structure of the Trump organization. Right. This month, one of his companies, the elite Mar-a-Lago Club Resort in Florida, applied to import 70 foreign workers to serve as cooks, waitstaff, and cleaners. Now, I just want to remind everybody that Trump said, quote, I will be the greatest jobs president that God ever created. I will bring back our jobs from China, Mexico, and other places. I will bring back jobs and our money. Well, it doesn't appear to be the case. It looks like he's bringing... He's holding jobs. He is sequestering jobs for specifically foreign workers. And then his company does the due diligence, does the legwork to get them foreign worker visas. So a Reuters analysis of U.S. government data reveals that this is business as usual for Trump's empire. Trump owns companies that have sought to import at least 1,100 foreign workers on temporary visas since 2000, according to the U.S. Department of Labor data reviewed by Reuters. Most of the applications were approved. Nine companies majority owned by Trump have sought to bring in foreign waitresses, cooks, vineyard workers, and other laborers on temporary work visa programs administered by the Labor Department. The candidate's foreign talent hunt included applications for an assistant golf course superintendent, an assistant hotel manager, and a banquet manager. Two of his companies, Trump Model Management and Trump Management Group LLC, have sought visas for nearly 250 foreign fashion models, the records show. So it just continues. here's, Here's the thing. I don't have a problem with employing people from outside the country and getting them visas to work. I don't have that. No one should have a problem with that. That's awesome. Great. Giving people opportunities. That's I whatever. But it flies in the face of the things that he's saying. He's saying one thing with his stupid mouth and then doing another thing with his stupid company. So it's the hypocrisy of it that really bothers me. No one should be surprised by this, I guess. But... Where are these stalwart conservatives who are worried about building a goddamn wall? Where are they in the face of this stark hypocrisy? They're nowhere to be found. Right. Well, and even Ted Cruz, who is Donald Trump's best buddy. (laughs) What does he have to say about this? And in this article, they note that Trump and his lawyer, they have declined to comment. Of course they have. Because between the... The, his lawyer, that Cohen guy, last week saying that a, a, a husband cannot legally rape his wife. Mm-hmm. Between that and this, I mean, this, and you know, he's, he's not suffering in the polls, which again leads me to wonder what in the hell is going on with the Republican Party. Well, I guess we'll see on the first debate on August 6th. Right. Which is this week, everybody. That is this Thursday. Yeah, yeah. I'm very excited. Before we move on, though, um, Trump was on a radio show this week, and when asked about Sarah Palin, he had this to say. One of the things I most admire about her is that she took so much nonsense, lies and disgusting lies, and she handles it so well. She's tough and smart and just a great woman. So it's an honor to be with you today. I must tell you that, Kevin. Well, you've had some meetings with Governor Palin. I know when she did her monument tour through America, I think you sat down for pizza in New York City. Uh, You mentioned some of your thoughts on her. What else do you think about her as far as her leadership when she was governor? And if there is a Trump administration... 
could you see maybe picking up the phone, giving the governor a call, picking her brain on some things, or perhaps having her along in some official capacity? I mean, I'd love that, because uh, she really is somebody that knows what's happening, and, and she's a special person. She's really a special person, and <laughs> I think people know that, and she's got a following that's unbelievable. I still have people saying, oh, get Sarah's support, get Sarah's support, no matter where I go. Everybody loves her, and uh, she's got a tremendous... Now, she has, like me, she's got some people that don't exactly love us, and we understand who they are, and you sort of uh, forget about that. But she has a, a tremendously loyal group of people out there for her, and I think now, maybe more so than ever, you know, I'm looking at some of these candidates, they're weak, they're ineffective, and, uh, you know, it, to, a, to a degree that's actually almost hard to believe. And, you know, they... they they like the Sarah Palin kind of strength. You just don't see very much of it anymore. The Sarah Palin kind of strength. Let me tell you about the Sarah Palin kind of strength. Sarah Palin reminds me of the Lloyd Christmas character in Dumb and Dumber. That he is he, he is spectacularly stupid, but supremely arrogant about everything he knows. So it's both wildly ignorant and also really, really arrogant about his ignorance, but thinking that he's super smart. That's Sarah Palin to a T. She's the female Lloyd Christmas. I would have more to say about that if I cared at all about the movie Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> so, sorry about that. All right, let's move on. Hillary Clinton's email, that thing is not going away. This this scandal is has legs, and it, it appears that the emails that sh that were contained on her server that ended up being deleted, uh, they had information from five separate agencies, some of them spy agencies. A congressional official with knowledge of the matter said that intelligence officials who saw the five classified emails determined that they included information from five U.S. spy agencies. One classified email, now public and pertaining to the 2012 terrorist attack in Benghazi, reportedly contained information from the National Security Agency, NSA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, the DIA, and the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, which who knows what that is and that it even existed. <laughs> right. Well, it's not looking good. Um, I have read some accounts that say that the information, the classified information was secret classified and if that's the case it doesn't really give me that much pause because i know when when i very first got my my first security clearance in the marine corps jesse was a marine everybody <laughs> it's been a while yeah 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 um i had a top secret clearance in the marine corps and when i when i very first got my Ooh. when i got a secret clearance Ooh. i I thought, well, it's less than top. You can stop that now. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it sounds fancy. But when to me. I got my secret clearance, I thought, oh man, I'm going to be in the know now. I'm going to be <laughs> able to all this awesome stuff. And I was. It was very humdrum at the time. It was no different than information you could get in an encyclopedia. Really? Yeah, it was very mundane. You know, maps, uh, census information. You know, kind of dumb stuff. They would just like tell you who the current president is. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, very, you know, I mean, maybe not to that level, but, you know, geography, kind of dumb stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so if in the level of classifications, if this is just secret and not top secret, I don't think it's that big a deal. But, you know, only time will tell. I guess we may and may, may not find out. 
Clinton spokesman Nick Merrill said in a statement last week that Clinton, quote, followed appropriate practices in dealing with classified materials. So I guess we'll see. Yeah, well, I'm sure her spokesman's going to. What else is he going to say? Yeah, well, she fucked up. What are we going to (laughs) do? All right. Now, the crown jewel of this Dolomocracy segment is who's in the debate so far and who's on the bubble? Who's maybe not going to make it? Who's at risk? So 538 is our go-to source for all of this because they're amazing. At 5 p.m. on Tuesday, a gong will be struck at Fox News headquarters in New York, according to 538. (laughs) At that moment, the five most recent national primary polls, as recognized by Fox News, remember they're not telling anyone which polls they're looking at, will be averaged, and the top 10 Republican presidential candidates will get invites to the network's primetime debate on Thursday the first of the season and then 538 notes a full disclosure here they don't have any actual evidence that a gong will be used <laughs> so that's good i like that so let's just go with the latest from august 1st yeah, yeah. of who's going to be in the debate trump jeb bush scott walker marco rubio rand paul mike huckabee ben carson ted cruz chris christie and John Kasich. Hmm. And then right on the cusp is Rick Perry and Rick Santorum. Yeah, so Lindsey Graham, no go. Jim Gilmore, George Pataki, Carly Fiorina, and Bobby Jindal. Yeah, yeah. So the interesting thing is, though, that Fox is also going to be having a debate for the underdogs, I guess you could say. <laughs> right, right. So the big debate is... Thursday, August 6th, and it's going to be from 9 to 10.30 p.m. That's Eastern Standard Time. And it's going to be moderated by Brett Baer, Megan Kelly, and Chris Wallace. But there's going to be the debate for the underdogs at 5 p.m. Eastern. That same day. Yeah, it's so wow. it's so early because no one is going to watch it or care. <laughs> there, well, well, 5 o'clock, that's 2 o'clock in the afternoon on the West Coast. So half the country is still at work picking up the kids you know they're they're not really addressing it with a with a respect and you know the the gravitas that the main debate carries right and they're still having bill hammer and martha mccallum as the moderators for the, that the b team yeah <laughs> well, no, i don't think bill hammer is the b team anyway okay well, we'll see i think Brittany and i are going to try something out for this first debate to maybe put an episode out we're, we're no promises we're going to try something to see if it works, see if we're able to do something, and then going forward, we will we'll look at publishing episodes. So there might be a bonus episode. Maybe we'll just run it if everything works well. We'll run it as our as our Sunday episode, or would it be Wednesday episode? No, it'd be the next Sunday after the debate because the debate's on Thursday. We will see. No promises. So moving out of politics and into, I guess, what is the Olympics in Rio de Janeiro coming up, the Summer Olympics is to be held in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Well, the AP has been investigating the Associated Press, and apparently there is some very filthy conditions for swimmers in some of the waters surrounding the Olympic events. Well, here's something that's coming to light this morning. Video of another contentious traffic stop involving... Human sewage, viruses, and bacteria are polluting Olympic venues in Rio de Janeiro. 
That's what the Associated Press found during an investigation of the swimming and sailing sites. It concluded the athletes will be facing health risks because of contaminated water. CCTV's Lucretia Franco reports from Rio. Internationally renowned Rio de Janeiro is often referred to as the marvelous city. But instead of evoking fun and fashion, it could also become famous for its dangerous levels of water contamination, with just a year to go before the start of the 2016 Summer Olympics. An investigation by the Associated Press News Agency found high levels of viruses and bacteria from human sewage in Guanabara Bay, Copacabana Beach, and Rodrigo de Freitas Lagoon, where the water sports will take place. Athletes are worried. First is the problem of the, of the pollution, of uh, health hazards inside. Uh, especially in the strong winds, they get a lot of splashing in their faces and a lot of water, and if they capsize, they have to swim or dive under the boat which is uh, quite dangerous, I think, uh, with the, all the bacteria found in the, in the bay. Rio's water tests were conducted by the coordinator of the Environment Quality Program at Fevale University in southern Brazil. Results showed that Rio's waters are chronically contaminated. The values we have observed in our tests are very high. We found out, comparing with results from other groups, that raw sewage is being dumped directly into the waterways. Rio's officials have already admitted they will not meet the target of treating 80% of the water sites by the time of the Games, as promised in the 2009 Olympic bid. But they say they have reduced pollution by half. Not enough, according to the AP investigation, which did not find one water venue safe for swimming or boating. Raw sewage can cause respiratory tract infections and digestive illnesses. Sailing and rowing qualifying events will take place next week, and some athletes have already reported being sick. But Brazilian officials are confident the water will be safe when the games begin. Lucrecia Franco, CCTV, Rio de Janeiro. Uh, that's real gross. That is extremely disturbing. One of the reports that I read somewhere said that it's not just uh, intestinal difficulties or diarrhea or just, you know, you get sick a little bit. It could be like hepatitis A that you could contract. I bet. When you're swimming in poop, Brittany Page. Yeah. It's poop water. That you're swimming in. Well, I mean, and here's the thing. When you're swimming, at some point, water gets in your mouth, in oh, your nose. Yeah. I mean, it just happens. There are times where I will, you know, as a germaphobe, reflect on my time as a kid in, you know, the local swimming pool in my community. Ugh. And there were several times where I, at some point, got a mouth full of water yeah, and swallowed it. That's urine soup is what that is. A public swimming pool is urine soup. You gargled urine. Yeah. Other people's urine. And it makes me it makes me <laughs> sick to this day. I could see that 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 fluttering of that gag reflex kind of coming up when I started talking. Yeah, it's disgusting. So I wonder what we're going to do here. It's you know, Olympians are they are special people relative to competitive their their competitive nature. I think a lot of them are going to just drive forward, push ahead and do it, but 
are you going to risk hepatitis and, and these other horrible infections just because you want to compete? It's, I, I, I don't know. What are they going to do? It's, it's disgusting. And shame on the, the, the International Olympic Committee for granting the bid for the games to Rio if they don't have the wherewithal to, to get it cleaned up. They say, oh, well, we've reduced it by 50%, 5-0%, and it's still not even safe, like the clip said, it's not even safe for boating. It's not that, yeah, go splashing around, that's kind of gross. We don't even recommend that you float on top of the water. It's that gross. Yeah. <laughs> That's real bad. Real bad. So we will see. We will follow this and see what happens and what comes of it. But it's not looking good. All right, moving on. Well, you know, several episodes ago, we talked about microaggressions. And we've talked about kind of the, the, the ultra-liberal not wanting to step on anybody's toes or offend any one kind of nature that in the universities around America now. Well, the University of New Hampshire has released what they're calling a bias-free language guide, and I really want to talk about it. Yeah, so the bias-free language guide is not necessarily a set of rules, but more suggestions for how people should be speaking. They define inclusive language as, quote, communication that does not stereotype or demean people based on personal characteristics, including gender, gender expression, race, ethnicity, economic background, ability, disability status, religion, sexual orientation, etc., there's a whole section on microaggressions, micro insults, and micro invalidation, which is degrading a person's wholeness <laughs> through making false assumptions about the other's ability, causing a sense of invalidation. Right, right. So I'll go through these. There are preferred language, there are preferred keywords, right? And then there are problematic slash outdated words to match the preferred. The ones to avoid. Yes. Yeah, okay. So we'll start with these. These are the preferred phrases. People of advanced age, old people. <laughs> now these so are old people would be would be the outdated and people of advanced age would be the preferred. No, they are both listed in the preferred column here. O old people is preferred? Apparently, but here's the problematic outdated terms. Okay. Older people Elders, seniors, senior citizen. Uh, I, I don't understand this at all. Let's give me some others. So a preferred term would be person living at or below the poverty line. <laughs> people experiencing poverty. Those are both preferred. Yes. People experiencing poverty. Yes. Okay. Now problematic is poor person, poverty stricken person. Ugh. Now I can I can kind of get the, this one because it is sad to you know call someone a poor person. Well, if you're a poor person, it's why is that different than a person experiencing poverty? Is it because you're 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 labeling the person they are poor? That is what they are, rather than oh they're a person who's experiencing poverty. Right. So it's externalizing the label. Yeah, but yeah, still though. Who experiences poverty? Poor people do. And it doesn't. It, here's the thing: is that they don't want labels. But someone who doesn't have money, they're poor. It doesn't mean that they're poor forever. 
as soon as they have money, they're no longer poor. They're someone with money. Well, you're going to love this one even more, <laughs> given your reaction to that one. So preferred person of material wealth. <laughs> now, problematic rich rich person yeah because rich people don't like you talking about how they're rich the, the same thing applies just because you're rich right now doesn't mean you're going to be rich tomorrow you know what i mean during the crash of 1929 the stock market crash overnight people went from people of material wealth to people who were suffering in poverty or whatever so you're saying both are labels and both don't necessarily represent a chronic label. Exactly. Absolutely. Okay. I'm just trying to understand what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are there any others? Yeah. Oh, yeah. What? <laughs> Are you kidding? Give, give, me some, give me some good ones. Okay. Uh, preferred U.S. citizen or resident of the U.S. Well, those are two different things. Problematic American. Uh, really? Mm-hmm. So... Let's 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 unpack this in a way that's not American centric. Let's, you know, they are a resident of the nation of France, really. So to say they're French, that's bad. Well, or is they... this this whole embarrassment about being American that we don't want to, you know, put ourselves ahead of anybody else? They have this note here. It says North Americans often use American, which usually, depending on the context, fails to recognize South America. Oh, Jesus. So really, it's, it's, this is nonsense. So here's another preferred. God damn. Here's, here's preferred along those same lines. North American or South American, problematic American, assumes the U.S. is the only country inside these two continents. No, it doesn't. And also, nobody identifies as a North American. Oh, what are you? Oh, I'm a North American. Oh, what are you? I'm a South American. People from Brazil... Don't identify as South Americans. They don't identify as the continent? Right. I mean, so I don't even know if they do that in Africa. Oh, I'm an African. No, I'm a Sudanese. Or I'm Somalian. Or I'm Kenyan. It probably you, you depends know? on where they are when they're asked. So someone from Africa who is in the United States might say, oh, I'm African. I'm from Africa. Yeah, yeah. And maybe. then And then when pressed, oh, well, where are well, you from in Africa? It's like when I talk to people from back home in Idaho and they say, oh, you know, where are you living now? Oh, I, I live in L.A. Mm -hmm. When I, I don't live in L.A., I don't even live in L.A. County. Mm -hmm. But people don't know what Orange County is. They don't know where, you know, Newport Beach or Costa Mesa or Huntington Beach. They don't know these places. Right. So I just give them a general roundabout. But it's not labeling. It's not, it's just for the other person's sake to give them a little more ease with the information that I'm giving them. So here's kind of a contradicting thing within this this guide so preferred use the specific name of the country on the continent africa example egypt ethiopia problematic africa which is a continent of many countries well isn't that the same thing where they're saying that it's preferred to say north american or south american right that's a those are both continents right and, so in america the United States is a country within the continent of North America. So that's a little, that's a conflict in here, I think. Yeah. That they're not being consistent. Listen, listen, I'm not, I'm not opposed to being sensitive 
and not wanting to insult people, but we're making insults and aggressive aggressions out of things that aren't aggressive, <laughs> that aren't insulting. Even oh, when you sorry. Like, even when you say someone is poor, I know you're over there having a good time. No, whatever I'm, you're reading, I'm li- I'm reading the rest of the list. <laughs> well, go ahead, one more. Um. Oh, okay. All right, two two more. <laughs> no, okay, we'll just do one more. So this is preferred, folks, people, you all, y'all, problematic guys when referring to people overall i have had instances where i say hey are you guys okay guys guys it's become colloquial it doesn't mean men hey you males over there it's colloquial (laughs) oh yeah damn well yeah it's listen it, it is this weird movement of people who are straight up their own asses trying to be tripping over themselves to be hypersensitive in a way that doesn't need to be, it doesn't need to be achieved. Yeah. And especially with like the people of advanced age. I mean, they know it means old people. Right. It's just another word. You're for, just using a different phrase. That's exactly They right. know what it means. So, so how is elder, elderly person, senior, senior citizen, how are, how are those things different from people of advanced age? It's not like you're, listen, this, let me give you an example. People of advanced age, that's preferred. Problematic, old fucker. Th- that, <laughs> that might want to be a- be avoided. That is outdated <laughs> and problematic. But this, I don't know. I, what's the audience think? L- let's 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 go to the audience and and get it uh, some kind of vibe from them about what they feel about this because. Like I said, I'm all for inclusive language. I'm all for not offending people. You know, you don't want to call someone in a wheelchair a filthy cripple or a cripple. But, you know, they're handicapped or is there one of those? But, but that's my issue, though. It's that those are all they're doing is calling it different. And in another 20 years, you know, someone of material wealth is going to be that's going to be outdated and there's going to be a new way to do it because that's become so commonplace. It's just, it's this evolution that we're forcing upon ourselves relative to our language. There's some of them that are ridiculous. And then there's some of them that I'm okay with. I think you universally think they're all ridiculous. So it would be interesting to hear what the audience has to yeah, say about it. Let's do that. Six five seven four six four seventy six zero nine. You can leave us a fewer than three minute voicemail there. If you would like, you can also email a voice memo from your smartphone to I doubt it at dollamore.com. There's also Twitter, I doubt it podcast. There's also the Facebook page, which if you're not liking the Facebook page, go right now and like the I doubt it podcast Facebook page because we would love you for doing it and share it to your Facebook page so that your friends can see it and your friends can like it as well. Right. I mean, this, this entire project is a conversation that we want to have. We want to move the conversation forward. Like you've never heard me say that before. And to have a conversation, we need multiple parties because let me tell you between you and me audience, sometimes it gets boring just talking to Brittany. Okay. (laughs) Okay. That's how dare you. I would also like to say, don't be afraid to, you know, bombard your friends with invites to like the page as well, because I heard 
And this is just speculation, but you heard this. Yeah, I heard that your Facebook friends really love invites to like pages. (laughs) So I think they'll really it'll grab their attention. Yeah. 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 They're also very rarely done. I, yeah. I don't I don't very often get invites to like different pages. No. Right? Yeah. So it's like an occasion. <laughs> it's an event. Yeah. All right. Let's move on. Um, Brittany found an article this week that I find very, very interesting that talks about the link between students and the major that they choose and the per- their, their, their particular parents and their income. A variety of factors influence an undergraduate student choice and major interests, ability, career plans, among others. And now, recent findings suggest that parents' income also plays a role. Students from higher-income families tend to pursue majors in English and history. Kim Whedon, a sociologist from Cornell University, found after analyzing data from the National Center for Education Statistics, according to the data, students from lower-income households choose to pursue associate's degrees or major in areas such as law enforcement or firefighting. So you can see the disparity. And yeah. we, we like to talk about these things because we often talk about the phrase, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, right? I hate that phrase. Which is used to tell certain groups of people that, hey, despite your situation, you should be able to come out of it and just pick yourself up. And yeah, who cares about the limitations that you have in your life? You should be able to take care right, of it. Right, And so we like to talk about these studies that illustrate the difficulty in doing that. Of course it's possible, but it's difficult when you come from a family that is, you know, has less means or whatever. Right. People experiencing poverty. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Which is one of the ones that I liked. So Uh, I'm going to start saying that now. Yeah, Very funny. According to Whedon, The information collected by the National Center for Education Statistics is a nationally representative data set. The data were collected from approximately 12,000 students starting from when they were 10th graders in 2002 and ending in 2012 after they became college graduates. Whedon believes that three factors influence the majors chosen by young adults from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. Students from lower-income households, for one, tend to attend schools with less funding for the arts and humanities. Yeah, yeah. It is interesting, and it it's important because it follows a lot of students over a lot of years, and it gives a, a wide swath that this isn't one-off. This isn't like an odd occurrence. That multi, They're showing a trend, a general trend, and those kind of things can't be ignored. Right. So she says the amount of money that parents spend on their children's educational opportunities outside of school also factor into this equation. Parents who earn more can afford to spend more on their kids. Obviously, that would be the case. Risks, she says, are also taken into consideration. Students with lower economic statuses tend to major in subjects with more job availabilities. So rather than focusing on going on to get a graduate degree or pursuing a subject that you are interested in, kids from lower socioeconomic backgrounds are more concerned with how am I going to survive? Right, Getting into the job force as quickly as I can. Right. I need to get a job and I need to get out there because no one's helping me. And I need to get this done. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, one more because Brittany has the big brain and is always scanning for awesome studies and reading journals. Brittany found an article on or a study on procrastination 
and impatience from the Journal of Behavioral and Experimental Economics. Yes, these researchers, this is just an awesome study. But Very, and well, I'm a procrastinator, so mm-hmm. this is interesting to me. You're also impatient. Anyway, move on. <laughs> so <laughs> we didn't plan that. It sounded planned. No, though. I did. Go. Okay. So, let's go. Let's go. Okay. Researchers, <laughs> you're stressing me out. Researchers from Columbia Business School, Kellogg School of Management from Northeastern University, and the Booth School of Business and University of Chicago did a study on procrastination and impatience. They used a combination of lab and field evidence to study whether highly impatient individuals are also more likely to procrastinate. So you would think that the more impatient someone is, the less likely they would be to procrastinate, right? Because they want to get things done. They want things to happen quickly. And Logic would, would, would indicate that, you would think. Right. So to measure impatience, the researchers elicited individual discount rates by giving participants choices between smaller sooner and larger later rewards. That means they were given an option of, here, you can have something now and it's a smaller amount, or you can have something later, it's a larger amount. Right. So it's almost like a spin on the marshmallow test that they give to kids to test the delayed gratification of children. Yeah, sure. Where they put a marshmallow in front of them and say, okay, sit here with this marshmallow. If you don't eat it, I'll give you another one when I come back. Right, then you'll have two. Yeah, and they test whether or not kids can do that, and they can't. Um, (laughs) Well, some of them, some of them can. Right. To measure procrastination, the researchers recorded how quickly participants completed three tasks, an online game, their application to the university, and a mandatory survey. The researchers find that, consistent with theory, impatient individuals procrastinate more, but only in tasks where there are costs to delay. The online game and the university application, specifically. Since they pay the participants by check... They also were able to determine whether the participants' cashing behavior is consistent with the timing of their payment choice. This right here is fascinating to me. They found substantial evidence of time inconsistency. Namely, more than half of the participants who received their check straight away, instead of waiting two weeks for a reasonably larger amount, subsequently take more than two weeks to cash it. This is bizarre to me so they give an option we're going to mail you i'm just kind of paraphrasing here i don't these aren't the exact dates and the data but we're going to give you a check for a hundred dollars right now if you wait for two weeks we're going to send you a check for two hundred dollars the procrastinators slash impatient people what they do is they say okay well i want the money now so give me the hundred dollars right now And then these assholes wait for longer than two weeks to cash the goddamn check. Yeah. (laughs) So they could have gotten more money in that amount of time that they waited to cash it anyway. They didn't actually physically get the money until after the two weeks anyway because they didn't cash the check. The human mind, people are bizarre to me. It is crazy. Yeah. So it's fascinating because I would have always thought people who procrastinate or impatient, I those would be mutually exclusive. Right. But, but apparently not. Yeah. That is awesome. This, as, as well as everything we've talked about, will also be on the aforementioned Facebook page for you to check out. Pew, pew. Pew, pew. Pew, pew. Pew, pew. Pew, pew. pew, pew. And since good things come in threes, we will move on to a little pew research 
relative to the most and least racially diverse religious groups. I saw this article from Pew on Twitter uh, about two weeks ago, I think, maybe a week and a half or so, and I was, because it's religion, I'm obviously very interested in it, but I'm I'm fascinated by these groups that are so homogeneous, you know what I mean? And it's not just black churches that are wildly um, one way, that one race. It's There are a few white churches that are pretty, pretty white. Yes. So I'm going to continue to work really hard today and do more reading. That's your, that's your job. Okay. I'm sorry. So yes. So, so do, do, do your job. Okay. <laughs> the nation's population is growing more racially and ethnically diverse. And so are many of its religious groups, both at the congregational level and among broader Christian traditions. But a new analysis of data from the 2014 religious landscape study also finds that these levels of diversity vary widely within U.S. religious groups. Now, here's the great thing about Pew Research is they are doing a new analysis of data they collected from 2014. So they do this awesome data collection and it provides all these insights and then a year later they're still getting all these tremendous insights yeah. from the study they did so they looked at 29 groups including protestant denominations other religious groups and three subsets of people who are religiously unaffiliated they then gave them a diversity score on a 10 point scale so the most diverse according to this data Oh, I should say that there are five racial and ethnic groups, Hispanics, non-Hispanic whites, blacks, Asians, and then other races and mixed race Americans. Yeah, yeah. So there's five categories. So the most diverse religion they found, Seventh Day Adventist. Huh. Yeah, yeah. There's 37% white, 32% black, 8% Asian, 8% mixed, 15% Latino. So pretty mixed. And then the second most diverse is Muslim, third most Jehovah's Witness. I was going to say the J-dubs for sure because they, I, I, I likened them to the Seventh-day Adventists relative to the, the people who come to the door. I mean, I know a lot of Seventh-day Adventists and I, I know a lot of Latinos who are, who are in the SDA movement, if that's a movement. And then when I have Jehovah's Witnesses come to the door, you know, it's, it's rarely just a straight up white guy. It's... It's always, they got a little something in there. Okay. <laughs> All right. And the fourth most diverse, which is interesting, is Buddhist. Huh. And that's 44% white, 33% Asian. That's the majority of that religion. Huh. Yeah. Richard Gere. Is he a Buddhist? Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. And then you have nothing in particular as the fifth most diverse, which they have 64% white. So they're fifth most diverse with 64% white people. Right. Okay. So the least diverse is National Baptist Convention. Uh, that's black church. That is 99% black. Yeah. Yeah. Then the second least diverse is Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. And that's white. <laughs> that's real white. That is 96% white. Well, here, here's what I would, if I had any analysis of this at all, it, and it's not really a justification, it's just an explanation, is there's a, there's a historic reason and trend and logic behind why there are black churches. It's because they couldn't worship with whites. Right, where white, having a white church 
it doesn't have the same panache, if you will, of, of, as having a black church because they imposed that whiteness on themselves where if blacks wanted to worship, they had to worship together because it was imposed upon them mm-hmm. due to the s- systemic bullshit that we have put on blacks historically in this country. But he- here's, let me ask you this, and this is akin to some of the topics we've talked about recently, you know, having the Mormon kids come over, the missionaries come over, and me asking that guy about being a Mormon and being black because we had a black missionary. Mm-hmm. Listen to episode 140 if you haven't. Um, what what numbers are in that in like in Mormonism? What are the numbers of the other more brown races? I'm saying that tongue in cheek. Um, what are those numbers for um, Mormons specifically? Right. Um, so the the black portion is so small I can't read a number on this bar because it's a bar that's separated in different colors. Right. And then the Asian bar is also so small I can't see a number. But the mixed race is 5%. And the Latino is 8%. And the white percentage is 85%. Yeah. So if you add those together. I'm shocked that I'm shocked that 85 it's only 85% white. I would have expected it to be higher. But I know that there's been a very profound marketing campaign in South America and other countries to try to boost the church's enrollment. So if you add those numbers together, it equals 98%. So the black and Asian percentage... Less than 2%. Is, yeah. Yeah. Between the two, and the Asian bar looks slightly bigger than <laughs> the black bar. Yeah, I think it's an anomaly to be black and be a Mormon. Well, that's interesting. We, we love Pew. They do a good job, and uh, we, we get a lot of good stuff from them. And we're going to wrap it up with a little taking care of biz. Taking care of biz. So as always, we like to end the show with some uplifting stories. And this is an uplifting story for sure. It is. 12-year-old Matthew Flores is a bit different from the rest of us. He loves junk mail. He's also a person experiencing poverty. He is. (laughs) Until recently, advertisements were the only reading materials available to him. He loves reading so much that he approached his mailman in Salt Lake City in a Salt Lake City suburb on Friday to ask if he could have any junk mail. The strange question prompted the mailman, Ron Lynch, to ask why. Lynch detailed Flores' response in a heartbreaking Facebook post afterward, quote, Today while delivering mail to his apartment complex, I saw him reading ads, and then he asked me if I had any extra he could read. He told me his wish is to have books to read. I told him the library had many, but he said they don't have a car, I'm assuming they means his family, right. and that they cannot afford the bus. The mailman then asked his Facebook friends if they could spare some books for Matthew Flores. Quote, most kids his age want electronics. It's great to see his desire and you should have seen him beam when I said I could help. He's counting on me, so I'm counting on you. The mailman thought that Facebook post might bring in 50 or 60 books. 
But then his request went viral. Oh, yeah. And people from around the world, including the UK, Australia, India, have sent books. He told the Huffington Post that hundreds of books have been delivered to the boy's door so far, with hundreds more likely on their way. And he's amazed at the generosity. So... Matthew Flores says that he can't wait to share the books with other kids and has promised to read every last one. <laughs> he he should be careful making a promise like that because he's probably going to end up with thousands of books. Th- this is a story that makes me, I really, it makes me uh, emotional. It's There are good, good people out there who really, really care. And so, it's awesome. So if you want to send... A book. Oh, yeah. We've got the address. To awesome. Matthew Flores. It is Matthew Flores with one T in care of Sandy Post Office. Sandy with a Y. Sandy, Utah. 8850 South 700 East. Sandy, Utah. 84070. And we will obviously put this on the Facebook page. It'll be our very first post. I'll put it up tonight. Yeah. So it will just be there in the morning. As soon as you listen to the show, it'll be on the Facebook page. And that would be awesome. That would be a great way to get involved. And uh, it'd be awesome to get this post guy on the on the show and talk to him because it's good people. You know what I mean? It's also taking note of something that's going on. So he... Being present. Right. So this kid came up to him and said, can I have more ads? And he's like, well, why do you want more ads? Instead of just like, yeah, here you go, kid. Take these ads. Right, and, right, right. You know, he's like, well, why do you want more ads? And then it led to this amazing act of kindness. Awesome. Beautiful thing. Beautiful people. We love it. We love you too. We appreciate you every minute that you spend listening to the show. It is a wonderful thing. We are building a great thing here, moving the conversation forward one episode at a time. If you'd like to support the show other than listening, you can go to dollamore.com and on the left-hand side of the page, there is a search bar for Amazon. If you're going to shop at Amazon, if you're going to spend your money there anyway, why not use our affiliate link? We get a little bit for every purchase that's made and every bit goes a long way towards supporting your very favorite show twice weekly, Filled with news, news and ridiculous comment. As the aforementioned ad mid-roll ran, uh, there's also patreon.com slash I doubt it with Dollamore. We would love to grow our Patreon base. It really helps us uh, defray costs, buy equipment, to to dedicate more time to the show. And we we love our supporters. Very, very much. In fact, our latest Patreon supporter, Ben, I want to say thank you very much, and we appreciate you a lot. So we will see you next time. For Brittany Page, I am Jesse Dollamore, and this has been I Doubt It. Bastard Breakfast Bird. (laughs) 